You know, Gaisley is a hallowed spot, chosen by God. I have no question about that. And I'm just praying that there will be a big group here on Sunday. Because I believe I might have the most important message to share that I've ever given here at Gaisley. My heart has been absolutely rent by the letter that some of our faithful Seventh-day Adventist members have received. Accusations of unbelievable falsehoods and imminent threat of disfellowshipment from this God's remnant church. And I'm here to say we cannot stand by idly and act like martyrs and say, well, it's going to happen, it'll happen. God expects us to love this church too much to allow that kind of thing to happen without every effort being made to stop it. And I intend that we're going to do everything we can to stop the work of the evil one in trying to destroy God's faithful remnant today. And I'm tonight going to talk on the remnant. And on Sunday I'm going to spend the whole of the day. I don't know how long it's going to take. But I want to feed you over the Sabbath hours with the word of God and with the special messages that he has entrusted with us. But Sunday morning, and if we need it well into Sunday afternoon, we're going to move forward. Tomorrow morning at the Sabbath school hour, I want to give you some reports on what's happened since Hengelo. By the way, Norman wants his... Love sent to his precious wife. He said, tell her, there's no way I could get a telephone call out of... Out of you may as well give up. You have no idea how hopeless it is to get that call out. I discovered that when I was in Poland. Just an impossibility. But he stressed to me so many times not to forget... To carry, he and I roomed together over there in um, in Hungary, and he even put up with my story. I told him the Brits <laughs> were made of sterner stuff than the Americans. But um, I want to tell you something of what God has done since I've had the privilege of being now in um, Poland and in. Berlin and in uh, Bozvar there in Hungary and in each of those places we can sense the movings of the Holy Spirit of God. And then on Sunday we're going to take up this very serious issue of the relationship of God's people to God's church to the word of God we're going to look at church, the church manual. We're going to look at, at um, the responsibility of the laity. We're going to go into it in much more depth than I did in Holland. In fact, I only had one opportunity to talk about this. And we're also going to do a little review 
of the providences of God that led to this institution, this, this, these meetings, this fellowship. It wasn't something that any human being designed. It came from the providences of God. There's no question in my mind about that. It's not even a possibility. It is a certainty. Well, as um, Richard said, it took all the grace of God to get me here today. In fact, in Europe, I cannot but thank the Lord for the wonderful providences that got me through. I've never been in so many tight squeezes for trying to find people in all my life. You know, it's a simple matter when you fly across the continent of America or somewhere. Never once have I ever in all that time failed to have someone come to the airport to pick me up. But that happened in Katowice in Poland. And I didn't have Tadeusz's name, I didn't have his address, and I didn't have his telephone number. <laughs> At least I couldn't find it. I knew I'd been given it back in Heartland, but I didn't have it. If you've ever been into a new country where hardly anyone speaks English, it sounds a little foolish. I'm looking for a man and I don't know what his name is and I don't even know what city he lives in. But you know, God is, is, is unbelievable in what he can do in those circumstances. I didn't know that he lived in a town about an hour's drive away from Katowice. I thought he lived in Katowice. So that was the first blunder that I'd made. And here I was going around the train station trying to find someone that might speak English. And if you think that's an easy thing in Poland, <laughs> they, they, if it was Russian, I could have got through to them very easily, but not English. Eventually I found a young fellow that spoke just a little bit. And I didn't know what to do. The only, there were no coins being used there, and yet obviously the telephones needed coins coins or something to go in I didn't realise you had to buy a token somewhere to use for the telephone wouldn't have helped me anyway even if I'd have got one well he suggested, this young man suggested I go and try the post office and he sort of gave some directions so I moved more or less in the way he directed his hand and that didn't help me too much except so here I was trying to taking out envelopes on the street and asking where to and eventually some men sitting on the seat pushed me in another direction and after much walking and investigation I eventually found the post office. And I went around everyone in the post office trying to see which one spoke English that I could um, get some help from because I thought, well, maybe what I should do is call back to Holland and find out from Jan de Groot. He'll have the, the, the telephone number and the name and everything. There wasn't one employee in that post office that spoke English, not even a little bit. So I was praying and I was walking out and I said, Lord, I don't know what to do now. When a younger woman came up and in fair English said, um, do you need some help? She must have heard me going around to all these people. I said, I most certainly do. I've got to find a man that's... But I don't know what his name is. And 
sounds funny now. It wasn't funny then, I can assure you. And, um, but I said, if I can get a phone call back to Holland, I can probably find out his name and telephone number. Well, she said, um, I work in an office. If you'd like to come with me, we'll see what we can do, which was very generous of her. She could see this poor, befuddled stranger. <laughs> well, I went up to a couple of flights of steps into a very commodious office area with four major offices, but she was the only one. She said her um, boss was away, which was, was out of the office, and um, I talked with her, and she did everything. Well, she said, it's almost impossible. What's the number? When I told her I didn't have the number of Yanda Groot. <laughs> well, it's just about impossible to get numbers. But I've got a friend down the post office. I'll ask if they can go up to Warsaw and see if they can work out the number, because I gave the address and that. But eventually that friend in the post office, and Katowice is a city of about 800,000 people. It's not a small city. It's one of the biggest cities of Poland. And eventually the word came back that they couldn't do anything about it in Warsaw. And then she got a bright idea. She said, we make um, some business that was an importing-exporting business with a firm in France. Let me send a telex to them and see if they can find the number in France. That sounded... But, of course, it was going to take some time. She turned up. So in the meantime, I went back to the railway station, which wasn't far away, and it was lunchtime now. I'd got there before 9 o'clock, but it's now lunchtime and no sign of Tadish or anything. And after I, I was able to buy some bread rolls and some banana and, and tomato. So we, I had lunch there at the... At the um, and um, then I um, thought I'd go through my multitudes of papers that I got from people who'd been giving me so much while I'd been over in Hengelo. And eventually I found the sheet. Oh, what a blessing. It had the telephone number on. So I went back. She told me the word from France was they couldn't find the number either. So that was... She showed me the telex she'd got back from France. Uh, So um, by this time, her boss and another worker, they were both Yugoslav Muslims from Bosnia-Herzegovina but um, who um, ran that business there in Poland. And they were such gracious men... Uh, They spoke a little bit of English too. And he set me up. He said, look, we're not using that office. You can have it. It was an office at least as big as this room. And um, if you want to go to sleep, you can sit in the couch. We'll try and find this this number. They're looking, they're dialing up and getting no answers and so on. Do they both work? I said, I don't know. Well, most people in Poland both have to work to even live. That's what they told me. So, um, well, I said, I've got no idea. But eventually, the other Yugoslav said, this isn't Katowice, this is some other city. That was the first breakthrough. See, they were ringing Katowice, the number in Katowice. Let's find out what city it is. And eventually... 
he found out what city it was. Chesson. Oh, he said, that's quite away from here. And eventually they got through to Tadius and by 5.30 we were united. I say, if the Lord can get me through that one, I even what happened to me today getting here pales into insignificance. <laughs> but um, God is good, isn't he? You know, wherever you are, he knows where you are. So you don't have to panic. Um, and um, the worst thing I could do would be, oh, I'll get on the plane, the train and go to Berlin and, and get where I, where I can get in contact with people I know. Where, but I didn't have to do that. And we had a fine meeting there in Poland. But I'll talk about that tomorrow. Well, let's take up our Bibles because this is a Bible study tonight. You'd expect that, wouldn't you? The remnant is a truth that is very near and dear to Seventh-day Adventists. So I want you to come over to the first chapter of Isaiah. And I want you to see how modern Israel follows so tragically in the line of ancient Israel. The parallels are dramatic. I'm reading from verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. I look at that, I, I'm not going to spend time on ancient Israel, but you know much of the history of ancient Israel. But I want to look at God's church in the end time. God's Seventh-day Adventist church. You'll notice these words are so rich, aren't they? I have nourished and brought up children. Has God nourished us in the Seventh-day Adventist church? I want to tell you, we've had the the best diet that any human being since the Garden of Eden have ever had in terms of spiritual food. The greatest message, the fullest message that ever has been given to mankind has been given to this generation. God has nourished us as children. But I'm here to say, like Israel of old, we have rebelled against God. And then it goes on, the ox knoweth his owner and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know my people, doth not consider. Now that seems a strange statement. You mean we don't know God? I believe the answer is a resounding yes, we don't know God. In the fifth volume of the Testaments, page 80, Ellen White warns us that at the end of time there be gods of many in this church. Now, the fact that we all use the same name, everyone singing in the church praise to God, doesn't mean that they're serving the same God. You remember the experience <coughs> that um, occurred at the time of King Jehoshaphat. Perhaps we should look at it so we can get the parallelism here in um, Chronicles, in Second Chronicles, chapter 17, I think it is. Uh, 17 and 18. Um, 
And um, you'll notice there in verse eight, chapter 18, that is, you remember that Jehoshaphat went up to make a league with Ahab, the wily, wicked King Ahab in the northern kingdom. This was a great move. Ever since the time of Jeroboam and Rehoboam, there had been great tension between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And always the northern kingdom had wanted to come down and possess the rest uh, to take Judah captive so they could have all of the old kingdom of Judah. And only God had saved the father of Jehoshaphat, Asa. And God had saved Abijah before him from the threats of the pagan kings of, of Israel coming down to destroy the kingdom of Judah. But now here's good Jehoshaphat. One of the finest kings of Judah and he goes up and as soon as he goes up there, King Ahab, he's, he's ready for him. He wines and dines him, if you read the story here in the 18th chapter. And then when he's wined and dined Jehoshaphat and got him um, realizing that he owes something to Ahab, then he says to Jehoshaphat, will you come and be with me in the fight against the Syrians at Ramoth Gilead? Will you fight with me? And before he had time to think about it, and even more importantly pray about it, what had Jehoshaphat said? Listen to it. And the king of Israel, verse 9. I'm sorry, before that. Um, And Ahab, king of Israel, said unto Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Wilt thou go with me to Ramoth Gilead? And he answered him, I am as thou art, and my people as thy people, and we will be with thee in the war. It barely said that when he realized the problem. And so he started to do something about it, and he said, Look, now wait a minute, we need some word from the Lord. Ahab was ready for that, and he got the 400 prophets of course, I don't know where they'd come from. He'd raise them up after the ones that had been killed by Elijah at the time of Elijah. He always needed that number. And um, therefore the king of Israel gathered together the prophets, 400 men, and said unto them, Shall we go to Ramoth Gilead, this is verse 5, to battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up, for who will deliver it into the king's hand? Who did they say was going to deliver it? Baal? Of course not. They didn't say it was Baal. They wouldn't dare say that. They said God. Now these were prophets of Baal. But here they used the name of the living God. And they said, God says go up. And he'll deliver it into thy hands. Now I want to ask you a question. Were they really talking about the God of heaven? No. And when you hear people saying, praying to God, doesn't mean that they believe in the God of heaven. There's too many differences today. You think of those who believe that God does not have the power to give victory over sin. Is that a different God from the God that you serve? You think of those who believe that Christ came in the nature of Adam before the fall. Is that the same saviour that you serve? No. 
And so here it says, The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. They don't know him. Verse 4, this is Isaiah 1, verse 4, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corrupted. They have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, they are gone away backward. That sounds strong language from God, but that's happening in our church today. Corruption and evil and sin and perdition and immorality are rife within God's remnant church today. And these people are still claiming the right to membership in God's church. Adultery, thievery. And some of these have the audacity to be, mem- to be ministers of the Seventh-day Adventist church. I want to tell you, God must be terribly displeased when he sees men who have been proven in the courts of the land to be thieves. And I'm thinking of two ministers in the United States. One who with his wife was found guilty of taking many... VCRs out of a Sears store. They had a good thing going for them. Till they were caught. One was given five years, the husband was given five years suspended, and the wife four years suspended. And I think of another minister. I know him very well personally. And he was found guilty of embezzlement. Signing someone else's name to a check in front of a a teller in a bank in the Midwest. And the interesting thing is, the teller happened to know the person whose name he signed. And she politely said, just a moment. And she went in and called the police and they arrested him in the bank. He was quickly moved from that part of the country to the west coast. But then he had to leave that church suddenly for a period of three months because the judge had given him a sentence but had suspended it um, giving him community service in lieu, and he had to go back and spend three months completing this community service. Those men are still active pastors in the Seventh-day Adventist Church today. So it's not only lay people, it's ministry that are caught up in these acts of vile wickedness. That's why I say we're not going to Let faithful Seventh-day Adventists lose their membership without a real struggle. There are too many hirelings in the Adventist church today. Here it is, the wickedness. Verse 5, why should, this is chapter, for those just coming in Isaiah chapter 1. Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will... 
revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even unto the head. There is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. That's a sickening description, isn't it? What a description of God's people. But I didn't give that description. You didn't give it. God gave it. Now I'm sure that many say, well, that was Israel of old. That's not us today. Don't you believe that? God is calling for his people to realize that there is just a sad amount of sin in God's people. Oh, how we need to come close to Jesus. You know, if Jesus is in our heart, can we thieve? Can we commit adultery? Can we um, try to assassinate someone's character? No, we can't do any of those things. We're on fire for God and for his work. Verse 7, your country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your land, strangers devour it in your presence, and it is desolate and overthrown by strangers. And and verse 9, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very... We're coming to the point, aren't we, of our sermon tonight. What had God left in Israel and Judah? No, not a small remnant. A very small remnant. Elsewhere, Isaiah says the remnant is feeble and weak. Feeble and weak. That's without him, of course. With him, it's altogether different. We're going to talk about this very small remnant here tonight. Many people seem to think that most... that means just the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I want to tell you, the remnant is not just the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So we're going to look at that in just a moment. Who the remnant is. The Bible leaves no doubt as to who the remnant is. Verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifice unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. In other words, God's saying, look, you're carrying on the forms of religion, but I am just disgusted with it all. Then verse 13, bring no more vain oblations, incense and abominations unto me, the new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting, even in the the special spiritual services. God's saying, I'm sick to death of this form without true religion. That's what God is saying here. And all he's got is a very small remnant that he acknowledges as his true people. Verse 15, And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear you. Your hands are full of blood. And then the remedy comes. Wash ye. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. That means, of course, justice in the full sense of the word. Plead for the widow. And then this text that we all know. 
Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You know, as a, a, a lad, I learnt that text. That was one of the memory texts that I learnt as a boy. It wasn't too easy for me to understand, seeing I was 30 years old before I first saw snow. So you can understand where it says, as white as snow. And that wasn't so easy for me to understand as it would be for those that have seen it all their life. But of course the wool was a little easier, seeing Australia has about a quarter of the, the sheep of the world. But I must admit, after seeing snow... I came to the conviction that snow was much whiter than wool. But here, here are the contrasts here, that we're to have our sins cleansed by Jesus. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. This is the appeal to the rest of Israel. God's got this very small remnant of verse, verse 8, verse um, um, 9, I'm sorry. But now he's talking to the rest of Israel. And he's saying to them, Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Then come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. What are the next words? Verse 19. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. I want to tell you there are only two kinds of people in God's church. They're the obedient and the disobedient. And God's call is always to the obedient. And God's rewards are always to the obedient. This idea that we can continue to be disobedient and live in sin and yet be saved in the kingdom of heaven cannot be found within the word of God. The word of God is so clear. That the rewards, in fact, if you come to verse 20, you see what happens if we rebel against this call to obedience. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. There I read verse 21 as I apply these messages to our beloved church today. But I must read it. Because it's the word of God. How is a faithful city become an harlot? Now, most of us, probably all of us know what it means to be a harlot. Here is a person with many, quotes lovers. And Jerusalem had become a harlot in that she had not only tried to ingratiate herself to God, the God of heaven, but to other gods. And today harlotry is in the Adventist church. 
we go seeking after the pagan concepts. Well, they're all pagan. Every one of them goes back to paganism. Anything that comes in from Roman Catholicism, you can rest assured, has a pagan origin. But you're right. And we become harlots. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, but I don't want to end this chapter on a sad note because there's some marvellous statements in this chapter. Come to verse 27. Oh, verse, verse 25 we'll read through from. And I will turn my hand upon thee and purely purge away thy dross and take away all thy tin and I will restore thy judges as at the first and the counsellors as at the beginning. Afterwards they shall, thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. We're at the time now where God is wanting to restore and to redeem Zion and her converts with righteousness. We've got to get out there and get those converts to be um, redeemed along with the faithful in God's people. And the destruction of the transgressors and the sinners shall be together. In other words, don't think that everyone's going to respond to this call of God. But God is going to redeem Zion, his true people, his remnant people, And they're going to get many converts. But those who remain in transgression are going to be destroyed. Now if we come over to Romans, we have a familiar text on the remnant. Romans chapter 9 and verse 27. This is of course... Quoting from the book of Isaiah, chapter 10, verse 22 and 23. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Who is um, Israel today? Who is Israel? That most specifically refers to this Seventh-day Adventist church. Though the number of Israel be as the sands of the sea, how many are going to be saved? Just a remnant. Just a remnant. Now that's a little deviation from the way Isaiah put it, but it's putting it within the context of the last days. Only a remnant. You know, I don't know how you feel about it, But my heart aches to think that most of the people in the Seventh-day Adventist church are going to perish. Doesn't that make you feel sorrowful? The greatest light ever entrusted to people and most are going to reject it and they're going to die eternally. But here it is, clear as crystal. The remnant. Now we're going to identify the remnant. Come over to Zephaniah 3. 
Some of you know this text well. Zephaniah 3 and verse 13. You know, hidden in many of these small so-called minor prophets. You know, that's a bad title for these men that have written these books, Minor Prophets. They're called minor because what they've written has been relatively small messages, short messages. But when you look at Zephaniah and Zechariah and Joel and Hosea and so on, do you think their messages are minor? They're major messages. It's not the amount that they wrote. It's the magnificent messages that they contain. Now let's look at verse 13. It's so clear. The remnant of Israel. Now this is not talking about the remnant of the world. This is talking about the remnant of Israel. The remnant of God's church. His people. The remnant of Israel. Shall not do. Shall not do iniquity. Nor speak lies. Neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity. What is iniquity, or what is sin? What is it? Transgression of the law. So that immediately tells you they have to be Sabbath keepers. couldn't be a Sunday keeper, could you? And be part of the remnant. I want you to keep that in mind because I have a little story that I want to tell you in a few moments. If they keep the commandments, they will keep all ten of the commandments, including the Sabbath commandment. But I want you to look at the reverse side of that coin. The front says the remnant shall not do iniquity. What does it tell us about the rest of Israel? What does the reverse side indicate to you if you look at the other side of that coin? That the rest of Israel do do iniquity. That's clear, isn't it? If the remnant don't do iniquity, then clearly the rest of Israel, the rest of the church, must be engaged in iniquity. And by the way, they believe they'll be saved in that iniquity. How do I know it? Come over to Matthew chapter 7, to another familiar passage. But sometimes we look at them slightly differently when we see them in the light of a particular topic. Verse 23, 22. Many will say to me, In that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. Sounds good, doesn't it? These are surely men and women that will be saved in the kingdom of heaven. At least they think they should be. These are not atheists. These are not agnostics. These are people that in the name of the Lord have done many great things. 
But the answer is, then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, why does God send them away? Doesn't he like good works? Won't there be those in heaven who actually have performed miracles? Won't there be those in heaven who will have cast out devils? Yes. But this group had a problem. We're not recommended to God by what we do in terms of this act or that act. And I don't, I don't want to be misunderstood. Our works are very critical. We're judged by our works. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. But just because a miracle is performed doesn't mean that God has been the author of that miracle. That's what I'm wanting to say. You could have two people and, one, and both could um, be praying for the healing of someone that was sick or maybe dying, let's say, with cancer. And both could be healed. And one could be healed by God and one could be healed by Satan. It's not the miracle itself that makes the issue. The issue is whether we've allowed Christ full and complete possession and control of our lives. Because when Christ is enshrined in our heart, sin cannot abide there. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 17, we have a very fascinating statement. It is not I, but sin that dwelleth in me. In Galatians 2.20, we have a very similar but contrary statement. It is not I, but Christ that liveth in me. One sin lives, the other God lives. And those who have God in the heart cannot sin. We sin because we move away from God and we uh, go the way of Satan. We are tempted. We are ingratiated. And we yield to Satan. And Christ can no longer stay in our heart. We yield to Satan. Christ does not choose to reign, co-reign with Satan. And Christ leaves immediately. Not that he doesn't lovingly woo us back if we are interested and willing. Let's come over to another statement on the remnant. Revelation 17 and ver- 12 verse 17. You know this text too. You could quote it, no doubt. The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of his seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now let's take this text and let's put it within its full meaning by taking the symbology and putting the real figure there. Who is the dragon? Satan. That's, of course, you only have to go back a few verses to verse 9 to be certain that the dragon is Satan. Um, And who is the woman? 
the church. Now, is this God's church or Satan's church? He's not wrath with Satan's church, is he? Wrath with a woman. And then we come down to the testimony of Jesus Christ. What is the testimony of Jesus Christ? The spirit of prophecy. So let's reread this text. And Satan was wroth with the church and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the spirit of prophecy. When I was in South Australia in December last year, I was speaking in Adelaide and after the meeting or one of the meetings, a brother came up to me very distressed about what his pastor had said in the sermon a couple of weeks before. Apparently the pastor had said something like this, that it is um, spiritual pride for Seventh-day Adventists to say that they are exclusively the remnant. And at least according to this brother... The pastor said, all God's faithful people, wherever they are and whatever church they're in, are God's remnant. Well, I'm here to say that those who are truly living up to their light in other churches are potential remnant. They one day, by the grace of God, will become part of the remnant. But you can't be in a Sunday-keeping church because you've got to keep the commandments of God. And this man said to me, what can I say to my pastor? I said, well, go back to him and ask him which church he knows, other than the Seventh-day Adventist church, keeps the commandments of God and has the spirit of prophecy. If you can find another church that keeps the commandments of God and has the spirit of prophecy, then it's possible that some of the remnant are there to discover any such church other than the Seventh-day Adventist Church of you. This is the only church that keeps the commandments, or within the church, keeps the commandments of God and has this spirit of prophecy. So no use looking at the Baptists or the Church of Christ or the Anglicans or the Roman Catholics or the Methodists or the Lutheran or Presbyterians. There are some godly people amongst them, no doubt about that. But they cannot be classified the remnant until they keep the commandments of God and have the spirit of prophecy. But again, I want you to look at the reverse side of this coin. This is talking about the remnant of the church. What does the reverse side tell us? That most of the people, all but the remnant, do not keep the commandments of God which is consistent with Zephaniah 3, 13. And they do not have the spirit of prophecy. Now, by have the spirit of prophecy, I don't mean that it's not available to them. Because mo many of these people are in the English-speaking world where it's simple enough to get the spirit of prophecy books. But I mean they don't have it in the sense that it is part of them. It's an integral part of their study and their understanding and their belief of the messages that God has given to us at these last days. I recently talked to a um, 
man, in fact, you probably, you know him, many of you, at least you know his name, Bob Trevs. How many of you know the name Bob Trevs? No? He is the man that puts out um, these um, religious liberty notes and so on that um, he's doing a marvellous work and he's a trained preacher, did his masters at the seminary and um, lives in South Dakota. And he told me that when he was studying at Andrews University, he was also told by one of the professors that um, you can't just limit the remnant to Seventh-day Adventists. Well, I don't care who tells you. could be the most knowledgeable and um, respected professor. If it's not a God, we must reject it if it's inconsistent with the truth. Those who keep the commandments of God and have the spirit of prophecy alone are the remnant. Now, we talk of the Seventh-day Adventist church as being the remnant church, and Ellen White talks about that, and I believe it. But that doesn't mean everybody in the Seventh-day Adventist church is a remnant. And some people seem to almost believe that if you're in the Seventh-day Adventist church, you're part of the remnant. But the scripture is too clear that the remnant is only a small part of God's end-time church. And this is another example of it. I, perhaps I should um, just say just a little more about this text. You'll notice again that the dragon was wrath of the woman, but that Satan does not make war on the whole of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Very important for us to realise. Can you imagine that? That Satan is not making war on the whole of the Seventh-day Adventist church. This says he's making war only on the remnant of a seed. Why is it that Satan does not make war on all the Seventh-day Adventist church? They're already his. And even Satan's got enough sense not to make war upon his own army. Now, during the Iraqi war and any, most wars, we hear a friendly fire. Sounds most unfriendly to me every time I read about it. But you're dead whether you're shot by a friend or an enemy. That's what it seems to be to me. In fact, they seem to think that almost half the casualties of America in the Iraqian war were either in training exercises or in um, self-inflictions. But Satan is clever enough not to do that. He doesn't make war against them. In fact, these are his best troops. These are the elitist troops of Satan. You know, Satan is certainly spreading, I'm sure, his nefarious fallen angels all over the world but you can understand that they're more directly concentrated upon those who claim to be Christians and then much more directed towards those who claim to be seventh uh, to, to be seventh day adventists 
because he knows that this church and the message of this church alone stands between him and the takeover of the world. (laughs) The world's his. He could derail the second coming of Jesus if he could destroy the truth that the remnant of this church holds so dearly. That's why we cannot give up the truth. There can be nothing that can stand between us and this truth. If we give up this truth, brethren and sisters, if every one of the faithful around the world were to give up this truth, then Christ could not return. Satan could claim that at last he had won the allegiance of the totality of the world. Therefore, it is so critical that none of us defect, none of us fail, none of us weaken in this last great conflict. Whosoever shall endure unto thee. What's the end? When is the end? Well, sometimes the Bible talks about the end being the close of probation, sometimes the return of Jesus. But either way, God's people have been sealed by that time. And whosoever shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Here is the patience of the saints. That means the endurance or the perseverance of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The Bible is clear that there is, there must be a continuation to the end. The remnant are those who will be faithful unto the end. Ellen White puts it this way. They'd rather die than commit one wrong word or action. That's a holy statement, isn't it? Now I believe that five and a half years ago, or five years ago, it really goes back further than that now, God raised up what became this Gaisley Fellowship. Here as a bulwark in Great Britain. I believe that it's going to be People like you and me, ordinary people, but willing that God's going to empower the Holy Spirit so that the whole of this world is going to hear the truth. See, as we read back there in Isaiah 1, the remnant are going to have converts. So it's not a matter of sitting back and doing nothing, is it? And saying, well, it's good we're part of the remnant. They're going to bring converts and God's going to save the converts along with the remnant. Tomorrow we're going to develop further some of these strong aspects of what God is calling from his people at at this end time. And then as I told you, some of you weren't here. We're going to have a little longer time on Sunday than we normally do. I just wish we had a thousand people here on Sunday because I want to take up the whole issue of why it's important to do everything we can to retain our church membership, not let... Satan take a 
He's going to have to fight hard to get my membership, I can tell you. Now, the first thing I want to assure you, I'm not going to be talking about compromise. But the time has come for us to stand up and say, now listen, we are the authentic Seventh-day Adventists. You are the hirelings. It's not the matter of numbers. It's a matter of who is following the truth of God. And the time has come for us to say, look, we just cannot and will not weakly accept this kind of situation. I believe we dishonor God if we do that. We're at the end of time. We knew these things would happen. We know that many will be thrown out. But I'm telling you, it's going to be a, a battle. Because we love the Lord too much. And in loyalty to God, we want to be loyalty, loyal to his true church. And we want to fight every effort. But Satan has to completely take over this church. Then we can ask God to, to bless us. If in his providence or for, because of the perversity of men it fails, at least we can stand clear in the judgment. And say, Lord, we did everything we knew how to um, remain faithful. We're going to have prayer this weekend for those who are facing this, these despicable charges, which are totally unfounded. I've never read anything so unfounded in all my life. It's not as if I'm talking about people I don't know. And to think that these kind of accusations are being accepted by board members. I have written after Hengelo a very extensive letter to Elder Falkenberg. It's on tape. My poor secretary will be working hard the next few weeks after I get back on the tapes that I have been filling up over here. But I've called upon Elder Falkenberg to realise that we're facing an, an enormous crisis. We're faithful in country after country are having their membership called into question. I've mentioned Australia. I've mentioned the United States. I've mentioned Canada. I've mentioned Poland, the Soviet Union, Hungary. Switzerland, Germany, Great Britain and um, I've forgotten one or two other nations that just slipped my mind now. Yugoslavia, yes, I mentioned that. Yeah. And um, I told him if something isn't done and done quickly there will be such a schism in this church that it will make the European reform of 60 years ago or so, 60 or 70 years ago, seem like a very minor incident. And I don't want to see that happen. 
there will be a schism in the end of course the faithful will be in one portion and the unfaithful I think that's very close at hand but I'm going to do everything I can to make sure the faithful are in control of this church not the unfaithful whether we succeed or not is another matter or at least I don't know I can't foresee the future and I don't know what it will be but I know this that God has not raised us up to passively let all the billions, billions of dollars that have gone into this church just go into the hands of hirelings. Faithful, dedicated men and women down through the decades have given sacrificially to build up this church, to build up churches and schools and hospitals and conferences and unions and general conferences and it's not only what's happening now, it's what the faithful of all generations of the Adventist Church have done. And what happens here, and I'll be repeating this on Sunday just to get emphasis, what happens here if we just allow it to happen passively? We've already been talking to Richard about some of the things because we're going to get a fax off here before I leave. And it's going to go right to the General Conference. We're not going to sit by idly. When we've got faithful men and women, there's going to be no virtue in passivity. Remember that Christ calls this a warfare. And we're in a civil war in this church between truth and righteousness, between uh, truth and error, rather, Righteousness and sin. Between faithfulness and unfaithfulness. That's the war that's going on in this church. And we, God's called us to fight. Stand and fight for the right. He calls us an army. And God has called this army to do everything it can in the cause of God and of truth. And we could not stand clear in the judgment if we did not do that. We may still lose our membership, but at least by the grace of God we've done everything we can. That's the important thing. We respect our leaders. We respect our faithful pastors. And we love even the unfaithful ones. But we can't just follow them blindly wouldn't be right and the Bible makes it clear who the remnant are the remnant has nothing to do with who has the, the majority, in fact it has everything to do with the minority, if you're with the majority you're probably in the camp of Satan if you're with the minority there's a better chance of being amongst the faithful well I know we all want to get a good rest tonight I know I do too <laughs> been quite a struggle to get across here from Hungary and I feel a little weary in fact I felt almost exhausted till I read the letter coming in the car and that seemed to wake me up didn't it put a little more adrenaline into the bloodstream we need to get rest this is God's holy Sabbath day and as we look now it looks as if about the sun is I don't know what time the sun sets 
around about now. Yeah. So I believe that before we break up together as God's people, we should specially welcome in the Sabbath day, shouldn't we? And ask God that there will be a rich blessing for us, each one.